Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Hour 2 of Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. I'm Brian, just in case there was any confusion. By the way, I will be taking your calls this hour, 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. I got kind of a heavy topic here. And I, and I say that not in the sense is, boy, this is going to weigh you down. You're going to be you're going to be moping around for the rest of the day because of uh, what I'm about to talk about. But it's something that personally has been weighing on my heart. And it's finally to the point where I really I feel like I want to get this off my chest. I want to share some of this with you. And and hopefully it doesn't just sound like, oh, great. He's emoting again, everybody. Look, you know, hides on, on the emotional soapbox here. But uh, but I'm struggling with this. And, and here it is. It's getting harder to tell the truth. And I don't mean to, you know, be honest with other people when you're talking with them. I'm talking about. I have this very strong sense that we are approaching uh, a critical mass point in our society where speaking out, as I am wont to do on a daily basis, is in danger of becoming very dangerous or very unpopular. And, and I'm, I'm using a couple of different words here to describe kind of the same thing. It could be risky, not just to me, but to, to, to people who would listen and maybe even identify with it. And, and I'll tell you what set me off on this was an article I stumbled across uh, earlier today from George Packer, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic. The title of the article is called The Enemies of Writing. And you may not know this because, you know, I, I tend to deal in the spoken word, at least, you know, in podcast and in broadcast. But uh, but I've been a writer or at least an aspiring writer for at least the last 15 years, maybe a little bit longer. And, and to give you a little further background, I want you to understand. I'm the guy who used to hate writing the worst part of high school. The worst part of going to college uh, was, you know, well, you have a term paper due. And I was just, oh, oh I hate it. I didn't like to write. And when I went away for two years and I served a mission for my church, of course, I wrote a lot of letters home and a weekly letter to my mission president and so forth. And, and it really surprised me at the end of my mission, as I'm getting ready to go home and resume my life and become whatever it is, uh, you know, I'm in the process of becoming. My mission president specifically pulled me aside and said, I perceive that you are a writer. And I would encourage you to develop your skills in writing and to avoid going back into radio. Well, as you can tell, I didn't exactly take his advice, but uh, but at the time I was thinking, what does he mean? I don't like to write. And it wasn't until some years later that I discovered, you know what? Actually, I do love the written word. I love working in language. I, I want to be a wordsmith. I want to be able to convey ideas the way that uh, some of my uh, some of my mentors and my idols have done so. Uh, people like Joseph Sobran, people like Charlie Reese and and uh, and William Norman Grigg. Sadly, all three of those guys are gone now. They've all passed away. But uh, just brilliant writers with the ability to take sometimes complex issues and put them into easily understandable principles. And so that's what I have aspired to do. And I've had the privilege of writing professionally for about the last 15 years. By professionally, I mean in that I've, I've actually been paid you know, to, to submit my, my humble scribblings. 
But George Packer talks about something in this article that that really hit home for me. And it doesn't just apply to writing. I think it applies to those who would speak out in any form, whether you do a, a V blog or uh, or whether you, uh, you know, just blog online. Speaking out can be a very scary thing. And in this case, George Packer says a writer who's afraid to tell people what they don't want to hear has chosen the wrong trade. Now, the first part of his article, he talks about the relationship that he and Christopher Hitchens had. And, and they weren't exactly close friends, but they would they would exchange back and forth. You know, he he says, I could feel the rhetorical lash of his published words on my back. And then I'd try to make him feel mine. He says, I always felt like he got the better of the exchange. But he said uh, he also was uh, was friends with him. So they would trade barbs back and forth in writing. But in, at the end of the day. They'd, they'd tentatively exchange regretful emails without yielding an inch. Then they'd meet for a drink, and the whole thing would go unmentioned. And somehow, he says there was more warmth between us than before. Exchanging barbs was a way of bonding with Christopher Hitchens. And when Hitchens became sick, um, he received an email from him that, that really put it into to perspective. Yes, you and I are friends. But he wanted to talk about, uh, in, in this case, he's leading up to how he misses... Christopher Hitchens and his ability to just say what was on his mind. I haven't read a great deal of Christopher Hitchens, but I'll I'll concur with what uh, what George Packer is saying here is Hitchens was unafraid to tell you exactly how the cow chewed the cabbage. And he didn't care if it offended you. And I've always admired that skill in writers, but haven't been so willing to just dive head on and 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 attach or attack my own writing as if as if, you know, I could do that because I'm not sure that I could get away with it. He says, I take the loss of this, this spirit. His, the, some spirit went out of the world of letters when Christopher Hitchens died, and he said, I take the loss of that spirit personally. Why is a career like that of Christopher Hitchens not only unlikely but almost unimaginable? And, and then putting it another way, why is the current atmosphere inhospitable to it? What are the enemies of writing today? And that's where I would like to jump into this topic today. Because I'm not the only voice that's out there working to try to 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 bring some meaning and understanding and and maybe even, you know, on a good day, a little bit of inspiration to people who love truth or who love the principles that they stand for more than approval from the crowd. I know there are such people out there. Sometimes I feel like it's a very tiny, tiny minority. But I know they're out there and that they appreciate anything that gives them a little more fuel, a little more encouragement to hang on. And yet I see us moving into a, a time where, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make the, I'm not trying to make things out to be worse than they are, but uh, I see us moving into a time of great civic upheaval to where speaking plainly and clearly is going to be very, very difficult, if not dangerous to do. And yet what we need more than anything right now are people with enough conviction and willingness to suffer for their beliefs to continue speaking the truth, especially when it's unpopular. And I don't know if I've got the backbone to do it. I want to think I do. I want to believe that there's this heroic streak somewhere inside of me that that will see me through. But I don't know because I don't really feel like I've ever been put to the test. But if you're one of those people who has a message that you're trying to get out, and whether it's through writing, whether it's through the written word uh, or the spoken word, or whether it's through video or however you choose to do it, 
I hope you find this article encouraging and and somewhat uh, stimulating as far as uh, helping you understand what it is that we're up against. So let's talk about who are the enemies of writing today. George Packer says, first, there's belonging. He says, I know it sounds perverse to count belonging as an enemy of writing. After all, it's a famously lonely life. The work only gets done in comfortless isolation face to face with yourself. And the life is made tolerable and meaningful by a sense of connection with other people. And it can be immensely helpful to have models and mentors, especially for a young person who sets out from a place where being a writer might be unthinkable. But he says this solidarity isn't what I mean by belonging. He says, I mean that writers are now expected to identify with a community and to write as its representatives. In this way, this is the opposite of writing to reach other people. When we open a book or click on an article, the first thing we want to know is which group the writer belongs to. Now, that group could be a political faction, an ethnicity, or even a sexuality, a literary clique. The answer makes reading a lot simpler because it tells us what to expect from the writer's work and even what to think of it. Groups save us a lot of trouble by doing our thinking for us. And he says politicians and activists are representatives. Writers are individuals whose job is to find a language that can cross the unfathomable gap separating us from one another. They don't write as anyone beyond themselves. But today, he says, writers have every incentive to do their work as easily identifiable, fully paid up members of a community. Belonging is numerically codified by social media with its likes, retweets and followers. And writers learn to avoid expressing thoughts or associating with undesirables that might be controversial with the group and hurt their numbers. He says in the most successful cases, the cultivation of followers becomes an end in itself and takes the place of actual writing. And he says, as for the notion of standing on your own, it's no longer considered honorable or desirable. It makes you suspect, if not ridiculous. If you haven't got a community behind you, vouching for you, cheering you on, mobbing your adversaries and slaying them, then who are you? A mere detached sliver of a writing self, always vulnerable to being punished for your independence by one group or another, or even worse, ignored. All right, got to take a break here, but I hope this is uh, stirring some thoughts of discussion in your mind. If it is, call me up, 801-331-8113. Look, I'm not the only person who has a message that I'm trying to get out there, but I am definitely confident there are other people who are struggling with this as I am. Who do you write for? The group that will accept you or to speak the truth? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing an article from um, George Packer. Sorry, had to stop and think about his name for a moment. He writes for The Atlantic, and he's talking about the enemies of writing, or writers. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer as well as a commentator through broadcast and podcast, but man, I'm telling you, I have, I have a bit of a dilemma, and he nails it. And that is uh, there are enemies that 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 minimize our impact when we write, because sometimes approval takes precedent over the desire to proclaim truth. We'll get back to the article in just a few moments. I want to open up the phones. I've got Sam on the line with me from Missouri. Sam, how are you today? 
Not too bad. Can't complain. The weather's lousy, but I'm okay. So that's, I guess, a good thing. I like your cheery attitude. Yeah. I mean, we've had uh, off and on snow here for about two or three days. That hasn't accumulated because it's melting about as fast as it comes down because we're right in the low 30s. But still, it's a slop fest when you go out anywhere. But uh, anyway, what I wanted to comment on was this very subject you're talking about. I don't. I would just assume people not approve of my message initially until they think. Um, I would rather somebody think first. And but on the other hand, if I know if I know I'm right, and I don't claim to know everything, but when I know I'm right, there comes a point where you're going to have some who are just not going to approve. It's just all there is to it, and. Um, you know, it's it's it's, and it's been this way a lot longer. I mean, this is not a Johnny come lately. It's just gotten worse. You know, now with the censorship on things like Twitter and Facebook, I don't even fool around with those places because they're they're fast becoming places anymore. Where if you want to sit there and do cat videos and on YouTube or cat videos on uh, on uh, Twitter and you know Facebook and all that kind of stuff, display them up there. I don't have time for fluff. Okay, but. By the same token, I always have a saying that I use even during my own broadcast that I've done. I don't aim to offend, but sometimes the truth offends, so get used to it. And uh, I just put it I out like there. I like that. <laughs> That's actually a great yeah. way to say it. Yeah. And so, you know, if it offends you, um, get over it. There's that song that was out by the Eagles called Get Over It. I dedicate that to all the people who get their panties twisted up in a wad because somebody says something they don't like. And uh, that song, I think of that song every time in today's world. But, you know, I'm, I'm tired of all the, the whiny crybabies and all that kind of stuff, you know. We're not always going to agree on everything. But my basic premise of where I always come from is you have the right to live your life however you want. Just don't go fleecing money for me to do it through force. That's all. Don't force me into paying for your um, for your um, your uh, whatever it is you're doing. That's simply uh, that's a it's as simple as that when it comes to living life. You know, I mean, live your life however you want as long as I don't have to pay for it. Now that sounds fair. And uh, I don't know what could be more basic than that. You know, nobody's stopping you <clears throat> just because I say something. Nobody's stopping you. Now where it stops is when you bring your gun, you point it at me, and you demand money of me whether you use government to do it or whatever, uh, to demand that I live my life according to the way you want or, I, um, or I'm or i forced to um, give up some of my income that I could otherwise use to support my own household and to, um, and to use, you know, for the care of people that I care about to subsidize your behavior. And there's no better illustration of that than back when we had the Obama administration subsidizing um, cell phones for all the uh, misfits out there at the expense of the general public. That's an example. You know, it's just basically the idea is I, I will not, I will never ever yield to a socialist world. And uh, it's bad enough we've gotten this far, uh, you know, into socialism. But um, I keep speaking out on it. And if speaking out on it makes me... Um, somebody that um, you don't like, then just go uh, crawl in a hole somewhere, and I'll just keep preaching what I know to be true. Fair enough. Hey, thanks for weighing in, man. Oh, you bet. That's all I got, Brian. Take care. Hey, thank you so much. 801-331-8113. Back to uh, Charles Packer's article. 
He talks about the group Pan America. That's an organization he belongs to. And he says an organization he admires. Back in 2015, it gave its first Freedom of Expression Courage Award to Charlie Hebdo. Remember this, the satirical French weekly? Four months earlier, a couple of jihadists had slaughtered most of the paper's staff at its weekly meeting in Paris. And that award caused a lot of controversy, apparently, among American writers. In fact, more than 200 members of Penn America denounced it, including some of the country's most illustrious writers, and a half dozen table hosts refused to attend the award ceremony. Now, he says Charlie Hebdo's satire was often juvenile and sometimes took aim at intolerance in the Catholic Church or Orthodox Judaism, but the pen writers found its crude caricatures of angry imams and the prophet Muhammad beyond the pale. Theocratic Islam should be off-limits to satirists, the pen writers argued, because French Muslims belong to a marginalized, embattled, and victimized group. Well, so do French Jews at that moment, uh, French, uh, and so did sa- French satirists. But, he says, in fact, it took some nerve to argue that the balance of power between the heavily armed jihadists and the defenseless cartoonists was actually with the cartoonists. These 200 writers wouldn't honor other writers who'd paid the ultimate price for expression. They were members of an organization that was dedicated to free speech, but they wouldn't defend it in the face of murder. As Salman Rushdie said, I hope nobody, nobody ever comes after them. Now, to its great credit, he says Penn held its ground. Two years later, Penn gave the same Freedom of Courage Award to the Women's March. This time, there was no controversy because Penn members overwhelmingly supported the cause. The next year, the award went to three student gun control activists, and the year after, to Anita Hill. However admirable, however courageous, the winners were no longer writers, and the issue was no longer freedom of speech. Maybe the searing experience of 2015, the murders, the controversy that divided Penn, and then all the incredibly tense award ceremonies with riot police and bomb-sniffing dogs all around the Museum of Natural History had taken some of the heat out of freedom of expression courage. He says, after Charlie Hebdo, it became an award for American political activism. Penn was honoring heroes on its side, public figures whom the majority of American writers wholeheartedly support. And the award became less about freedom than about belonging. As Charlie Hebdo showed, free speech, which is the foundation of every writer's work, can be tough going. Now, he says, among the enemies of writing, belonging is closely related to fear. And he says, it's strange to say this, but a kind of fear pervades the literary and journalistic worlds I'm familiar with. He says, I don't mean that editors and writers live in terror of being sent to prison. It's true that the president calls journalists enemies of the American people, and it's not an easy time to be one. But he says, we're still free to investigate him. Michael Moore and Robert De Niro can fantasize aloud about punching Donald Trump in the face or hitting him with a bag of excrement. And the only consequence is an online fuss. Nor are Islamist jihadists or white nationalists sticking knives in the backs of poets and philosophers on American city streets. The fear is more subtle, and he says in a way more crippling. It's the fear of moral judgment, public shaming, social ridicule, and ostracism. It's the fear of landing on the wrong side of whatever group matters to you. And orthodoxy enforced by social pressure can be more powerful than official ideology, because popular outrage has more weight than the party line. Now, he says, a friend of mine once heard from a New York publisher that his manuscript was unacceptable because it went against a consensus on the subject of race. 
the idea that publishers exist exactly to shatter a consensus, to provoke new thoughts, to make readers uncomfortable and even unhappy. This idea seemed to have gone dormant at the many houses where my friend's manuscript was running into trouble. Fortunately, he says, one editor remembered why he had gotten into publishing and summoned the courage to sign the book, which found its way to many readers. But Packer says the prevailing winds are blowing cold in the opposite direction. Incidents like this, minor but chilling, happen regularly in institutions whose core purpose is to say things well and truly. If an editorial assistant points out that a line in a draft article will probably detonate an explosion on social media, what is his supervisor going to do? Risk the blow-up or kill the sentence? Probably the latter. The notion of keeping the sentence because of the risk, to defy the risk, to push the boundaries of free expression, now seems quaint. So the mob has the final edit. Trusted Voices of Truth and Insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde here. All right, I hope I'm not, uh, you know, bearing too much of my soul here, but this article by George Packer about the enemies of writing really hits home because, you know, on, on top of being a spoken word kind of commentator, I am a writer at heart, and I fought it tooth and nail for a good portion of my life. But uh, I love words. I love meaning. More than anything, though, I love the clarity that writing can bring. And especially in times such as these where there is so much confusion and division and conflict, I believe that a properly crafted message can provide light, truth, direction for people who are seeking after those things. And that's what I try to do. I mean, this is uh, I, I know. I know every writer has their own reasons for writing, but that's one of the ways where I try to wield whatever influence I have as wisely as possible. I don't want to use it just to make people angry. But at the same time, I find myself operating from a standpoint of, you know, if I say this, this is very likely going to trigger the people who normally might identify with me because sometimes truth is unpopular. George Packer says that a moment when democracy is under siege around the world, these scenes from our literary life sound pretty trivial. But he says if writers are afraid of the sound of their own voice, then honest, clear, original work is not going to flourish. And without it, the politicians and tech moguls and TV demagogues have less to worry about. It doesn't matter if you hold impeccable views or which side of the political divide you're on. Fear breeds self-censorship. And self-censorship is more insidious than the state-imposed kind. I'm sorry, that one bears repeating. Fear breeds self-censorship. And self-censorship is more insidious than the state-imposed kind. Because it's a surer way of killing the impulse to think, which requires an unfettered mind. A writer can still write while hiding from the thought police, but a writer who carries the thought police around in his head, who always feels compelled to ask, can I say this? Do I have a right? Is my terminology correct? Will my allies get angry? Will it help my enemies? Could it get me ratioed on Twitter? That writer's words soon become lifeless. A writer who's afraid to tell people what they don't want to hear has chosen the wrong trade. 
Now, he talks about how last year he taught a course in journalism at Yale. And he says, my students were talented and hardworking, but I kept running into a problem. They always wanted to write from a position of moral certainty. This was where they felt strongest and safest. I assigned them to read writers who demonstrated the power of inner conflict and moral weakness. Baldwin, Orwell, Naipaul, Didion. I told my students that good writing never comes from the display of virtue. But I could see that they were skeptical, as if I were encouraging them to deliberately botch a job interview. They were attracted to subjects about which they'd already made up their minds. Now, he says, my students have come of age during a decade when public discourse means taking a position and sticking with it. The most influential writers are those who create a dazzling moral clarity. Its light is meant to overpower subjects, not illuminate them. The glare is so strong that readers stop seeing the little flaws and contradictions of actual life and stop wanting to. They have only to bask in the warmth of a blinding glow. Now, he says the attraction of moral clarity is obvious, never more so than in the Trump years, when everything of value, honesty, kindness, tolerance, loyalty, courage is daily trashed by the most powerful people in America. The Trump presidency is tremendously clarifying, and the duty of a citizen is also clear to uphold those values in every way possible. But he says the situation of writers is different. On the whole, Trump has not been good for them. As Christopher Hitchens wrote, views do not really count. It matters not what you think, but how you think. Now, for writers, certainty has a flattering effect. It washes over the details of human experience, so they lose their variety and vitality. Certainty removes the, the strength of doubt, the struggle to reconcile incomparable ideals, or incompatible ideals, rather. The drama of working out an idea without knowing where it will lead. The pain of changing your mind. Good writing doesn't deny or flee these things. It explores them right down to their depths, confident that the most beautiful and important truths are found where the glare of certainty can't reach. Now, the imperative to take a position can be stunting. George Packer says it makes writers less likely to test their ideas against others who disagree, against personal experience and against facts. The enviable job of a reporter is to seek human situations that constantly confound your fixed ideas. But under financial as well as political pressure, reporting has given way to opinion whose currency, which is certainty, is cheaper in every way. He says, between my generation and that of my students is an entire cohort of writers in their 30s and 40s. And he says, I think they've suffered most from the climate I'm describing. They prepared for their trade in the traditional way, by reading literature, learning something about history or foreign countries, training as reporters, and developing the habit of thinking in complexity. And now they've reached their prime, these writers must wonder, who's the audience for all this? Where did the broad and persuadable public that I always had in mind go? What's the point of preparation and knowledge and painstaking craft when what the Internet wants is volume and speed and the loudest voices? Who still reads books? Some give in to the prevailing current, and they might enjoy their reward. Those who don't are likely to withdraw. The greatest enemy of writing today might be despair. George Packer says writers in other times and places have faced harder enemies than a stifling orthodoxy imposed across a flimsy pat platform. So he says, I have no glib answers to ours. What I can say is that we need good writing as much as ever, if not more. It's essential to, to, to democracy and one dies with the other. He says, I know that many writers hunger for this, even if they've gone quiet. And I know that many writers and editors are still doing this work every day. Meanwhile, Whatever the vagaries of our moment, 
the writer's job will always remain the same, to master the rigors of the craft, to embrace complexity while holding fast to simple principles, to stand alone if need be, to tell the truth. I don't know why this article speaks to me the way it does, but it definitely causes me to stop and reflect. What do I know and and what do I really understand about what I know? And I suspect that there may be some within the sound of my voice who likewise have a message that they're trying to get out. And I don't I don't know what to tell you in terms of. uh, You know, should you speak boldly? Is this a time to 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 be quiet? I guess everybody has to make their own call on that. But I think he correctly identifies that need to belong, the fear that I might offend the wrong group or I might offend the group whose support I've been counting on. And I have to admit, that is a very real concern. Now, there have been times I've had to stand alone or virtually alone on a particular subject to take the unpopular point of view, not I mean, for some people, I'm sure they're, they're well, you're just doing this because it's uh, it's just being contrary. And I can get where it, where it would appear that way. But it kind of sucks. It's painful <laughs> to be the person who is the odd man out. It's painful to be the one who is is saying, but but this matters. This is true when everybody else is, you know, sending cat calls your way. I think we need the truth more now than ever. And I think the uncertainty and some of the friction and tension that we see around us right now that uh, shows every sign of intensifying as this year goes on calls for more voices that can provide some clarity. And I'm going to disagree with George Packer on this. I think we need some people who can speak with a sense of certainty, not that they have all the answers, but that after careful consideration, there are some truths that it's okay to commit to. I mean, it's great to be open-minded, right? But eventually, at some point, you have to commit to the truth. One of my favorite writing mentors uh, years ago asked me, how can you be so sure about the things that you espouse? And I, I'm assuming he, he caught a sense of some certainty in whatever it was that I was writing or, or whatever it was I was discussing. And I told him, you know, it's, it's not that I really have all the answers here. But I said, I'll tell you what's really helped me is the fact that on some of these subjects that, you know, where I am am speaking with a sense of certainty or at least with with a sense of confidence that I believe this is the best way I've found so far. It stems more from the fact that on a nearly daily basis, I mean, like Monday through Friday, whatever time my talk show happened to air, I have had the opportunity to not only put these ideas out there, but to discuss them, to argue them, to debate them, to defend them. And you know what? There have been places where people have shown me, you know what? You're, you're coming up weak on this one, or there's something that's missing from your perspective on that one. But you put that out over, say, uh, I don't know, a modest 25-year career, and there are some things that have been discussed enough, and there's been enough opportunity to examine that I feel fairly comfortable in committing to, uh, to the truth of certain matters. Now I'm always open to new truth. My point is though, if in 25 years of talking about it, um, you know, there hasn't been anything forthcoming as of yet that would, you know, cause me to do a 180. I think I can feel okay about hanging my hat on some of those things. And for the things I don't understand, well, I guess that's why I have to keep learning. What are your thoughts? 
801-331-8113. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. All right, by my estimation, I am sorely in need of being put back in my place. Are you going to be the one to do it? Well, here's the number if you need to, 801-331-8113. Saw an interesting article uh, today. I'm just going to share a couple of excerpts from this. Christians are upset about the wrong things. And... I don't know if you like to regularly calibrate your moral compass, but uh, Daryl Lackey has uh, a really interesting take on this. And he starts with a quote from sociologist Tony Campolo, who has been known when speaking to Christian audiences to begin by saying something like this. I have three things I'd like to say today. First, while you were sleeping last night, 30,000 kids died of starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. Second, most of you don't give a shh. I'm not going to curse, but you get the word that he's saying. Now, he says, what's worse is that you're more upset with the fact that I just said shh than you are that 30,000 kids died last night. End quote. Now, Daryl Lackey says, when citing this, I have had people prove his very point by responding something to the effect of, yeah, I get it, but I still wish he would make his point some other way. And he says, that is his point. His point, in my opinion, isn't really about the children, although it is obviously. His point is that we Christians get upset over the wrong things. Our sense of moral outrage is often misdirected. The fact that we notice the language, are being offended before we really register the fact that children are dying, tells us all that we need to know. Any focus on a crude term and not on his greater point that children are dying of starvation or malnutrition and that we might be complicit proves his very point. Now, if there was a tiny gasp from the crowd at that word or an awkward silence, he says such, such uh, reactions were misdirected. People were upset about the wrong thing. The legalistic, simplistic, and shallow world of fundamentalism and even many aspects of, aspects rather of evangelicalism breed some rather odd triggers for what it is we're supposed to get upset about. And he lists a few of them, you know, from gay marriage to uh, using happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or uh, transgenders in public restrooms or people paying at the grocery store with their uh, vouchers or food stamps or becoming upset when you see someone smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. Or if you get upset when Hollywood puts out movies with coarse language or nudity, But uh, you have no problem with all the murders, gore and bloodletting in war movies. He says you're upset about the wrong things. If you become upset because you feel the government is restricting your religious liberties, but you're less upset or even applaud the restriction of the religious liberties of others. You're upset about the wrong things. I like this one, too. If you become upset when someone commits adultery or at the sexual lapses of others, but you are less upset when people gather around to stone them or gather around to throw insults or gossip or shun them or shame them or pass laws to single them out, you're upset about the wrong things. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. I see plenty of examples where I've been. Oh, yeah, I've been outraged about that. And he says if the response to the above is still, well, I get it, but... Then he says, you've missed the point and you've made the point all at the same time. Yes, you can be upset 
about those other aspects, rightly or wrongly. But the point is, those aspects often pale in insignificance when placed alongside the deeper and more important moral failing noted. The failing that should really upset us. It would be like someone telling Jesus just before he overturned the money changers tables and grabbed a whip how upset they were with the price of doves that year. It's not a problem of of false dichotomy. It's a problem of scale. And I love the example he uses here. And maybe you can remember this movie. You remember the movie Life is Beautiful? In that movie, we see Guido, Roberto Bignini, happy to think that his old friend, the Nazi doctor, will help him after the doctor recognizes him and makes his life easier inside the death camp. See, the doctor remembers how clever his friend was and how he could solve difficult riddles. And we begin, we begin to think that maybe the doctor realizes the moral wrongness of the death camp. Maybe he will try to save Guido and his family. But no, we finally realize, as does Guido, that the doctor simply wanted help solving a riddle. He doesn't see Guido or the suffering. That doesn't upset him. What upsets him is he can't find the answer to something as insignificant as a riddle. He even says he can't sleep at night because of it. If you haven't seen this movie, you really should. Keep some tissues handy, though. It's, uh, it'll, it'll hit you right in the feels. An extreme example, says Daryl Lackey, maybe. Still, he says, I think such is the sort of person we look like and are perhaps in danger of becoming when we get upset over the wrong things, when we focus on the incidental and we miss the deeper moral issue. And he's talking specifically to Christians. This is not, you know, about uh, the deeper political issue. What exactly did Christ call upon his followers to do? Love your enemies. Pray for those that uh, persecute you. Yeah. That's a lot tougher than uh, do unto others before they can do unto you, right? So Daryl Lackey says, Christian, don't be that person. Interesting thought. I don't know if it, if it nudges you the way it nudged me, but that's something that, that I feel like I actually benefited from, from reading. All right. One final thing here. This is a column from Jeff Minnick on intellectualtakeout.org, a comparison of two very different protests. He says in mid-January, we witnessed two rallies here in America that offered a stark contrast in activism. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, over 22,000 men and women gathered in Richmond, Virginia, to protest the gun laws lawmakers are seeking, and actually they are enacting at this moment. Organized by the Virginia Citizens Defense League, the rally far surpassed the 10,000 participants the VCDL had expected. Democrat Governor Ralph Northam declared a state of emergency in regard to the event. He had fencing put up around the Capitol lawn and in some of the streets and flooded the downtown with law enforcement officers. Mainstream news commentators had warned of possible violence, heralding the event as a gathering of white supremacists. The media and the governor came away looking like buffoons. Those thousands of attendees, many carrying firearms, stood in the cold weather drinking coffee, listening to speeches, and taking the opportunity to lobby their representatives. When the event ended, they cleaned up litter from the area and departed. Among these protesters were African Americans who were incensed at the media's description of the group as white supremacists. In fact, he has a link there to uh, Katie Pavlich's article on the event. He says, scroll to the bottom and you'll find one of these gentlemen taking umbrage with the television coverage during the days preceding the rally. Despite being packed into the narrow streets like sardines for harvest, Michael Vallos writes at the American Conservative, every single armed citizen I met and squeezed by was unfailingly good-natured and courteous. 
Flowers particularly notes the large number of women who came out to support gun rights. Now, it's unlikely that these Second Amendment supporters will win many concessions from the Democrats who have the votes to pass the new legislation. In the meantime, more than 100 Virginia counties, cities and towns have declared themselves gun sanctuaries, which means they don't intend to enforce the proposed legislation should it become law. That's 94 percent of Virginia. Now let's turn to the Women's March, which took place in D.C. on January 18th. Four years ago, following the election of Donald Trump, half a million women gathered here and more marched in other cities across the country and around the world. Impressive numbers, though the pink hats were a little over the top. This year, fewer than 10,000 marchers turned out to walk the streets of D.C., Some stayed home because of the inclement weather. The day was cold with icy rain. Others were disgruntled with the group itself with its squabbling leadership and charges of anti-Semitism leveled against some of the leaders. Etriel Davidson speculates in The Federalist that many women who originally turned out did so from a genuine fear that Donald Trump would somehow strip women of their rights. When that fear failed to materialize, interest in the march collapsed. She also points out that the group now appears more intent on attacking the president than actually battling for women's rights. But he says, I have one more theory. Though many of the women who participate in these marches are undoubtedly refined, some of them are crude. A few come across as bug house nuts. Some are both. And then he says, there's this woman. And he has a link. And you can see this woman standing there with her hair dyed orange red, both hands up with a middle finger raised, offering a litany of curses regarding the male patriarchy. Why someone would post such a video of herself online is beyond the ken of most normal people, male or female. But there she is. Now, he says, suppose you brought your eight-year-old daughter to the march and the two of you walked past this foul-mouthed loony. What sort of example is she providing? She's likely not a woman you would want your daughter to view as a role model. Better yet, suppose you are a married woman who loves her husband. Suppose you have brothers, sons, or male friends. Suppose, gasp, you just like men. When you look at these men and boys, do you see individuals or walking, breathing advertisements for male patriarchy? So he says, here's a test to determine what constitutes admirable behavior, admirable behavior at a protest. Compare the demeanor of the guy at the end of Pavlich's article to the woman screeching curses. And then ask yourself, which one you'd rather have supper with? I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes. You can find it on LovingLiberty.net. I would encourage you to take a look at it, see for yourself, make up your own mind. Again, it brings to mind the words of Leonard E. Reed, and that is the higher your objective, the higher the message that you were trying to get across, the higher the methods and the more virtuous the methods have to be that you use to get that message across. Vulgarity may shock and it may command some attention, but it cannot command respect. And that's actually what you need more than just attention. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 